Welcome to episode 58 of the Rich Roll Podcast with the godmother of wellness, Deborah Zake. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. I am your host, I am Rich Roll, and this is the Rich Roll Podcast, where we sit down and talk at length with the pioneers, the leaders in wellness, health, fitness, entrepreneurialism, and all of those that are pushing the boundaries to help educate us about how to live our best, most authentic life. And today, I have a very special guest on the show. Her name, her name is uh, Deborah Zake, and she's 91 years old. And you might ask yourself, well, what are you doing with a 91-year-old person on your show? I thought this was about forward-thinking people. Well, I have to say that uh, Deborah Zake, who joins us today, is probably one of the most progressive forward-thinking people I've ever met in my life. Uh, fascinating, fascinating person who's lived uh, quite an extraordinary life. Uh, how did this all come to be? Well, Julie and I uh, re- recently returned from a week at this wellness resort retreat center called Rancho La Puerta. It is a uh, wellness-oriented spa just south of the border in Mexico, outside of this little town called Tecate, which is, I don't know, about an hour east, maybe, of Tijuana, not too far from San Diego. Uh, And uh, we had the opportunity to go and spend a week there and present and speak uh, in exchange for (laughs) being able to hang out there uh, for several days, which was amazing. I'd never been there before. I knew a lot of people that have spent a lot of time there and some friends that make a point of going every year. This is a a sort of very well-known wellness destination spa, I guess you could say. Uh, And I'd heard a lot about Deborah, who is the founder. Um, And it's a fascinating story that we get into uh, about how she founded Rancho La Puerta back in 1940. And essentially, uh, she grew up in Brooklyn, uh, and her mother was a raw food vegan back in the 1920s, uh, probably as far back as the, t- the 1910s, the teens. Uh, she was vice president of the New York Vegetarian Society. And when the Depression hit, uh, her mother and father moved uh, their family to Tahiti, where they lived sort of close to nature and uh, hooked up with a guy who was sort of a professorial teacher with a little bit of a following down in Tahiti, a guy called uh, Edmund Zeke. And ultimately, Deborah became his secretary. And uh, later they married. And through a set of circumstances that involved um, Edmund having to leave the United States, they'd settled in Los Angeles area, but the, the Second World War was uh, was on the rise, and uh, being a Jewish person who had fled Eastern Europe, there was some sort of visa situation, and they had to get out of the country. They went to the town of Tecate in Mexico and sort of founded this little camp uh, where they settled down and started having people come and visit them for $17.50 a week, bring your own tent, and Edmund would sort of profess on wellness and living close to nature, and over time, they kind of built this little following uh, on the heels of sort of some people in Hollywood. Apparently, Edmund, who is Hungarian, uh, had a kind of following among uh, some behind-the-camera people in Hollywood who 
my understanding uh, at the time, there were a lot of Hungarians there. And the word got out. And before they knew it, uh, they had some notable people coming down to th- this place that they had dubbed Rancho La Puerta to spend time. People like William Holden and Kim Novak and Burt Lancaster and even Aldous Huxley. So it developed quite an interesting uh, sort of little universe down there that ultimately became the wellness retreat center known as Rancho La Puerta, which has been around since 1940. Um, And in many ways, uh, Edmund and Deborah were professing wellness uh, in a way that was kind of maverick and revolutionary at the time. I mean, this is long before uh, Jack LaLanne and, you know, maybe Jack LaLanne wouldn't exist had it not been for Edmund and Deborah and all the gyms and the spas and the resort centers and the massage sort of places, the sort of, you know, day spas that you can go to all kind of are, you could make the argument an outgrowth of what was going down in Rancho La Puerta, which was essentially the first true wellness destination, spa oriented kind of vacation spot uh, in North America. Certainly they didn't invent it. I mean, this goes back to the Greeks, but, uh, or maybe before that, but really they kind of ushered in this sort of advent of wellness in the United States and have been doing it for 70 plus years. And Deborah, who's now 91, uh, is as lively and together and with it and present as, uh, as I can imagine anybody at that age. I mean, incredibly sharp and, uh, and vibrant and healthy looking. Her skin is amazing. She doesn't want any help. She's marching around all over Rancho La Puerta and greeting everybody and really um, still very, very committed to this path of wellness and to getting people healthy. Uh, She's far from retiring or quitting and is on to her next venture, which is trying to create a lobbying group to butt heads with Big Ag and Big Pharma in Washington. She spent 17 years in Washington, D.C. running a federal agency. She's rubbed elbows with most of the past presidents and is very connected at a very high level with a lot of fascinating, interesting people. She's lived an incredibly robust, dynamic life and has seen a lot and been through a lot and lived through a lot. And, you know, really all of us who are interested in wellness owe her a a debt, a great debt of gratitude for all the hard work that she has committed her life to um, to manifesting, and she's a powerful force of nature. What she's built at Rancho La Puerta is quite quite astounding. It sits on thousands of acres, um, incredible facilities, yoga rooms, all kinds of fitness and exercise rooms, all kinds of programs for people that visit there to engage in. The food is amazing. The staff is insane, and uh, it was really a treat to be able to spend time down there. And Deborah also is the person who founded the Golden Door, which was kind of the first uh, sort of one of those celebrity, you know, sort of celebrity-oriented wellness spas where the stars would go to, you know, trim down and get healthy before a big role. Um, And uh, she's never quit. You know, she's still at it as vigorous as ever. And so it was a treat um, to get her to sit down and talk to us. I wasn't sure it was going to be able to happen. She's very busy uh, and doesn't live down in Rancho La Puerta. She lives in San Diego. She comes down once a week. And she made a special trip to come down later in the week just to sit down with Julie and I and have a chat. So I feel very honored that we got to spend this time with Deborah, And uh, I truly and hope, hope that you uh, enjoy this interview. Um, I found her to be incredibly inspiring. And I think that she has strong, powerful 
words of wisdom for all of us. And uh, even if you already know it, it's nice to be reminded and just uh, heartwarming that somebody who has committed their life for so many years to this movement is still is still at it with as much vigor as ever. So anyway, that's it. Uh, before we get into the interview, a couple quick show notes. Want to support this show? Many of you have. I really appreciate it. The show continues to grow. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, best way to support the show, click on the Amazon banner ad at richroll.com. If you're going to buy something on Amazon, most of us are doing a lot of our shopping online. Just click the banner ad at richroll.com first. Takes you over to Amazon. Buy whatever you're going to buy. It doesn't cost you one cent extra. But Amazon kicks us some loose change, and it helps uh, helps us pay for bandwidth and kind of keep the podcast rocking. So thank you for those of you who have been doing that. We really appreciate it. You can also donate to the show. There's a donate button at richroll.com. Donate on your own terms. Uh, and we have products at richroll.com. You can check all those out. Longtime listeners already know about that, so I won't bog you down on the details. We have Plant Power t-shirts coming out soon. It's taking a little bit longer to build out the store on the website and get all of that functioning, and I didn't want to uh, put the shirts up until we know that we have that completely sorted out. So it should be done, I don't know, next couple weeks, something like that. We're going to offer a bunch of different kinds of t-shirts. Very exciting, and new products on the horizon. So stay tuned for that. Uh, if you want to learn more about plant-based nutrition, go to mindbodygreen.com and check out my ultimate guide to plant-based nutrition. Julie and I take you through everything you need to know to get more plants in your life, whether you're a longtime vegan or new to the idea of eating a plant-based diet or maybe just want to uh, educate yourself a little bit more about how to dial in your nutrition. It's three and a half hours of online video broken down into five to 10 minute little chunks. Watch at your own time figure out the parts you want to learn about, go in the order that you like. And there's an online community there where you can ask your questions and we interact with you. I'm really proud of it. So check that out. Final, final note. There's a little bit of uh, audio buzzing during this interview. I have all the audio engineering stuff sorted out when we're in the studio, but sometimes when, you, when we go on the road, we run into a little bit of technical difficulty. Hope, hopefully it's not too distracting for you. Hey everybody, like me, Inside Tracker wants to help you start the new year right. So they're thrilled to help support the Living Proof Challenge, the no cost, science based habit building program designed by my well being wizard brother, Simon Hill, to specifically up level the most important biomarkers that drive health span, that drive disease prevention, physical fitness, and mental well-being, courtesy of a doable, evidence-based 12-week program elaborated upon in length in my conversation with Simon that dropped January 1. That's RRP804. If you listen to that episode, then you know the program entails comprehensive blood testing at both the commencement and conclusion of the challenge, and nobody handles blood testing better than Inside Tracker, who are graciously encouraging everyone to join the no cost challenge by offering a 25% off discount on inside tracker tests. To unlock the discount and learn more about this challenge, visit theproof.com/livingproof. Let's just get into the interview. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, the godmother of wellness, Miss Deborah ZK. Enjoy. Okay. 
we're okay. going. <laughs> Thanks so much, Deborah, for taking the time to sit down with us. I really uh, I appreciate it. And uh, it means a lot to us that you would carve out time out of your busy schedule to chat with us. Well, I read your bio and I'm blown away. <laughs> I read your bio and I'm blown away. You've done quite quite a few amazing things in your lifetime. I can't wait to delve into it. I've had a lot of fun. You have. We were talking about, uh, before we were recording, we were talking about this book uh, that you wrote called Setting Course, which is essentially a roadmap for new members of Congress to set up their office. And it's become, how long ago? When did, it, when did you first... I ran, in 19, I ran for Congress in 1982. 1982, right? You didn't end up winning, correct? But you learned a lot about the process. In the long run, I won a lot. You won <laughs> by not winning. You were better off not winning, I think. We're no. all better off that you didn't win. Yeah, well, but in the process, um, as a businesswoman, I wanted a manual. I wanted something to read. Mm-hmm. You know, there was absolutely nothing. It was not prehistory of man. Books had been around a long time. There was nothing about running an office. And I was amazed. And so, so the first thing I did when I lost, I told my kids, I'm going to Washington anyhow. And incidentally, my promo materials when I was running said I wanted to bring management to Congress because I had so many friends in Congress, and they would ask me questions <coughs> and say, Deborah. Uh, what do you think about this, or do you have some advice on this or that over the years? Because I had helped them get to Congress. Anyhow, I told my kids, I'm going to go to Washington. And I, in my race, we'd spent $100,000, which was a lot of money at that time. My guests were very generous, and everybody was supporting me. And uh, I said, I'm going to take, and we have a small foundation, and 100000 was almost all it was in it. But since I had put the money in the foundation, mm-hmm. I felt I could use it. And I said, I'm going to Washington. I'm going to take a certified check of $100,000, and I'm going to find a university who will take my money and give me a political science department and a professor and a bunch of graduate students, and we're going to do a management manual for Congress. Mm-hmm. And so when I got to Washington, I looked at the telephone book. The first one was AU, American University. I met with the president. I said, I have a check for $100,000. <laughs> Far be it from them to not accept this money, right? And for the first four editions, they published the editions as well. Right. And so it con- they continue to update it? and it It's comes updated out, so. all the time. Right. We have staff working full time because every new Congress... That is going to have turnover. We have a new edition. Right. And so essentially every new member of Congress reads this book or has their staff at least read this book to figure out how to establish their office well, they and run it, it effectively. They, they read, read it. It. Uh-huh. Uh, it, re- it reaches them the day after election. And there's always a 10-day or something gap. And most of them read it at that time. Mm-hmm. And I have a cute anecdote. The woman, this goes back 20 years, but... In my age, mm-hmm. <laughs> 20 years is not a long time. But the lady whose uh, husband was killed on the Long Island ra- Railroad, I can't think of her name, who, with the te- she campaigned in tennis shoes. She was quite oh, character. Oh, Anyhow, yeah. um, I met her. I, I'm always invited for the, to meet the freshman class. And if I'm convenient, I do that. And uh, she said, uh, 
And she told me, and then her chief of staff told me the first same story. They went to take a few days off in Puerto Rico, and they brought it with them to read while they were laying in the sun or something. And uh, she woke up at night and wrote a letter of resignation because she said it was too complicated. Too complicated? Yeah. Wasn't going to be able to do it. The chief of talked her out of it. Oh, no. Because usually the campaign manager becomes chief of staff, and they don't know much more either. That's funny. And it's supposed to make it sound easier, right? Well, no, it's supposed to explain how complicated it is. Right, right. But to provide a roadmap for actually achieving that. So, well, just one of the, you know, many, many amazing things that you've done in in your lifetime. I mean, I want to talk about your, your time in Washington, but let's go back to the beginning a little bit. I mean, you know, you are the godmother of, of the wellness revolution and the original wellness pioneer in so many ways. And, and so far ahead of your time, um, you know, here we are sitting at, at Rancho La Puerta. It's Julie and I, it's our first visit here. We certainly knew about it. Uh, my parents have been here many times and so many people that we know have spent time here. It's our first, uh, it's our first time <clears throat> actually visiting and we're really just, you know, enjoying it. And I'm really enjoying learning about the history of the place and how it was founded back with your husband back in 1940 and what that must have been like back then to be a wellness pioneer when, I mean, now wellness is very hip and everybody's into wellness, but what was it like back then? Well, the ranch was, you know, you hear necessity as the mother of invention. Um, We started a health camp. My husband was in a small circle, very well-known philosopher. And we were living in Hollywood, and he was teaching and lecturing and uh, had a number of students. And we got a letter from the uh, Romanian embassy telling him him that uh, if he were to report back to his regiment, because when you went to the university... You marched for two summers for two weeks. And uh, you were in the reserves. Mm-hmm. You know, voila, there you are. Anyhow, there were only two Jews in his graduating class, so that wasn't much, not much of a problem you know, for most people. But he, they didn't pay any attention that he was Jewish or this or that. They ordered him to report to his regiment in Romania at the same mm-hmm. time they were marching Jews off to concentration camps. So he ignored the letter, and we really weren't too uptight. He was married to an American, living in the States. And then we had two, three more letters, and a little unhappy, but not that much. Then came one saying his passport has been canceled, and an order for his arrest has been issued as a dessert. And we were pretty unhappy, but we didn't fall apart. But then we got a letter from U.S. Immigration and Naturalization saying if he was found in the United States June 1st, 1940, he would be arrested and deported mm-hmm. back to his country. That guy got, got us moving. Right. Time to get out. Yeah. We had no so choice. He, he, was a, he was a Jewish immigrant from Romania. Romania Actually, of had, Hungarian descent. Uh-huh. He was totally Hungarian. He came from a country called Transylvania. Yes. And that is a, a very controversial thing. It was Hungarian for hundreds of years, and the spoils of war during World War I was given to Romania. Mm-hmm. And you had met him originally when your family uh, had 
spent time in Tahiti, right? As a Five child, years. right? Yeah. So you, you lived in Tahiti as a youngster, although your parents were, were, were immigrants living in Brooklyn at the time, right? And you were, you were like 15 or 16 when you originally met him? No, I was 12. You were, oh, you were no, 12. I mean, okay. There was, but there he, was no connection. I'm right. a friend of my family. <clears throat> yeah. and, and just to kind of paint the picture a little more broadly, your, your, your mother was vice president of the Vegetarian Society of New York, New York Vegetarian Society. And she, from what I understand, was essentially eating a raw fruit diet back in the 1920s, 19, uh, what? We, we were health nuts, real health nuts. We had nothing but uh, essentially bought things, things like corn she dip in hot water and that was cooked. But I mean, or a potato. Right. I mean, that must have been outrageous at the time. But in Germany, my mother was Austrian, but in Germany, there was a very strong raw food movement. Really interesting. And uh, she had friends and a Dr. Welch uh, who wrote The Seven Essentials of Health that she believed in firmly and believed in. And Mm -hmm. uh, he had recommended this diet. And my mom was a woman of action. And uh, he told her all about it. He was her dentist. He, she, the first time she met him, she went home and threw about, out everything in the kitchen. I mean, actually gave everything uh-huh. in the kitchen away. And we started from scratch. And uh, you'd have liked my mom. Yeah, I think so. There's <laughs> something in common. Uh-huh. And they became health nuts. You know, I mean, they started exercising and walking. And they were both plump, happy Jewish couple with... Kids and you know, and suddenly the whole thing changed. Well, in any case, uh, we were middle class, fairly wealthy, and we had a couple. And I remember, and I went to school in the Bronx. We lived in Brooklyn, but there was a very special Montessori school in the Bronx because I'd learned to read when I was four, so it threw me out of kilter because mm. I was a bookworm and didn't do anything but read. Uh, but in any case, um, so I went to this school, and on our way back, sometimes the chauffeur would stop and we'd go to the docks and buy bunches of bananas and load the back of the car with green, you know, stems, you know, uh-huh. the whole thing of bananas, which we'd then hang in the furnace room to ripen because, you know, houses in Brooklyn had furnace rooms and right. coal, you know, coal bins and everything. Um, but in any case, so got to the stage in the Depression that the only thing available was bananas. Mm-hmm. And uh, my dad had sold his business just before the stock market crashed and invested in stock. And he and I had the women's, what they called the cloaks and suits in those days. And uh, he was very depressed. And I didn't, you know, obviously, I, I wasn't aware of any of this happening in school. Right. Yeah, you know, my brother, we weren't, this wasn't part of our conversation. But mom d- decided that my dad was really depressed and some one of his friends had committed and jumped under a train that was a tradition at right. that time uh, way of committing suicide and uh, so she came home one day and said um, we're leaving in 16 days and my dad said where to and she said Tahiti and he said where's that and she said I don't really know but here are the tickets my brother and I both remember the story identically the same way. You know, here are the tickets. So, so really, the uh, the the uh, 
decision to go to Tahiti was really a response to the depression and it was an economic financial yeah, decision. And I do remember the depression. Mm -hmm. I do remember the men standing in line for food. Right. And grave faces and gray men. Uh-huh. And then we got to Tahiti. And there was a, a like a health camp there, or no. what was the what was the plan? There was nothing. No, in Tahiti there was nothing. I mean, did you did your parents know somebody that was there, or why Tahiti? Nothing. Mother had read something that the fruit was abundant, uh -huh. that the trees <laughs> were loaded with fruit, and it was there for the picking. I had no idea what she read because I wasn't, you know, mm -hmm. I was seven years old. I wasn't this appealed to her her raw fruit diet uh, pension. Exactly. Yeah. It was more than a pension. It right. was our diet. <laughs> I mean, I'm trying to imagine uh, what it, what it must have been like living in in Brooklyn during the Depression, and and literally saying, "I'm gonna, I'm on this raw fruit diet." I mean, now it's sort of hip and cool, especially you know Los Angeles or Hollywood to to sort of experiment with these kinds of things. But I, I would imagine that would almost make you somewhat of a social pariah. We were, uh, we were. I had some cousins who remembered coming to dinner, and uh, some of the comments, I don't mm -hmm. think they're repeatable no. in public. <laughs> <laughs> and so, all right, so you ship off to Tahiti, and uh, was was the idea that you really were relocating there to live there, or yes. was this going to no. be a visit? Or no, no. You're, you're, you'd we, left New York. My or, mother gave away everything in the house, mm -hmm. and people lined up a block and a half. And everybody first come first serve, they had took up one piece home. Mm. And so ev we had no thing to go back to. Mm -hmm. She said, we are leaving. And uh, had no intention of ever returning. And uh, we took lots of steamer trunks with us. Uh, we weren't totally broke at that time, nor were we ever really, we were never personally totally broke. And um, so Tahiti was a, you know, and my dad was sort of, he worshipped my mom, and that's what she wanted to do. At that stage, he wasn't, mm -hmm. you know, he was happy to have a North Star. Mm -hmm. And I think I, I heard or, or read somewhere that when you arrived in Tahiti, how old were you, 12 at the time? No, no, I left when I was 12. No, yeah. I was eight. You were eight, seven okay. Or eight, seven or eight. That the world seven. went suddenly from black and white to color for you technical technicolor and 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 how why was that i mean what was it about being in this i mean just the pure exotic nature of being on a tropical island after living the in new people, york or the people as well uh, the old, i gravitated to the old the Asian women and the legends and the tales and the stories uh, and they they thought my brother and I became uh, we were the only sort of Anglo kids on the island, other than the governor who had two boys, and they disliked the governor, so they disliked the two French boys. Mm -hmm. They didn't have too much chance. And eventually, one of the missionaries brought a came the Sterlings and brought a daughter. But I mean, but essentially, so we were fussed over, and they let me sit in and listen to their tales. I picked up Tahitian and French very very fast. Mm. And, uh, you know, some people have, an, and kids in particular have a knack for languages. My brother and I picked up languages. And I would sort of trail around listening to their stories. And so the first year I wasn't in school, and it was, 
it was unstructured. And I, as a bookworm, I had wonderful friends. I went through everybody's library. I went through Zane Gray's library. I went through uh, the people who wrote Mutiny on the Bounty, both of their libraries. I mean, I had a ball just reading. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it, it was it was for a t- small child. And then, because I would play a little bit with the Tahitian girls, but then the conversation wasn't interesting to me, and I didn't know what they were talking about. Anyhow, and uh, so it was a sort of paradise for it. Right. And years later, many years later, Aldous Huxley lived on much of a year on the ranch when he was writing Island. Mm-hmm. And the children in Ireland are my brother and myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he would ask us all kinds of questions. These are about you. Uh huh. And so Edmund, when does he come, when does he come into the picture? I'm fascinated yeah. by this guy. I can't yeah. wait to learn more a little bit more about. Well, about if he him. walked into a room and there are a hundred people in the room, you know how sometimes some people have that magnetic thing. Yeah, you would turn to the door. He, and he had, he was, you know, I, I don't like the term bigger than life, but he had a presence mm-hmm. and a wonderful booming laugh that attracted people. You know, you turned to see who laughed and he laughed, you know, smiling and happy. And um, anyhow, but I, in, in Tahiti to me, he was just a nuisance because he had taken we had a particular swimming hole that we used to some camp weekends on. And he had taken over our swimming hole to live on and build a house. So I really wasn't very fond of him. What drove him to come to Tahiti, though? Okay. My husband had an incredible background. And he came, uh, he was part of a French scientific mission, and they were studying migration routes uh, through the Pacific. And they were with, with a yacht called the White Heather. And uh, he stayed in Tahiti. And uh, he uh, was interested in what they were doing at the leper camp. He had, had done some studies and things. And he got involved in uh, spreading the message of health nut. And uh, my mother, so we. First, there was this man who took over our camp, so we weren't too particularly pleased with him or anything. But uh, my mom, who had used to go on 21-day fasts, I don't recommend because after, then you begin to hallucinate, and it takes quite a while mm-hmm. to get settled down again. But she believed in that one had toxic you know, Periodic and, fasting. And all that stuff. But 21 days, really. It took three months to recover from each of them, or four months. Wow. Anyhow, but that was her belief. You don't have too much influence on that. Um, so don't go on 21 day fast. <laughs> Who was it we were talking to that was doing like 40 day fast? I don't know. No, well, juice fast. Yeah. No, she, would, she would just do water, right? Just water. Nothing else. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that's but a even long juice time. fast, forget it. Right. Because you're building bad cells every day. You don't have any building blocks for the cells that you're putting in your body that are going to stay weeks, months, many months uh, deficient. So it's not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, 
we won't go into fasting, but we no. recommend well, minimum. We, we, could, recommend we could sit here and talk fast. for a week, Deborah, yeah. if you want. So. Yeah, so we won't <laughs> go into fasting. Yeah. But in any case, uh, so she had wrecked her digestion. and Everything she ate disagreed with her. Just everything from one of the fasts. And so people were talking about that he was healing people and doing all these things. So mom went to talk to him officially. And he had her go home and to have something that she felt was sacrilegious. Oats and tomatoes. Rolled oats and tomatoes together. Acid and starch. I mean, it was mm-hmm. just like, <laughs> I don't know. What, you know, we, we've, we're just kids and the thing. But in any case, she digested it and turned her digestion around. And she had gotten so alkaline that she couldn't handle anything. Mm-hmm. You know, the... Oh, by, by this time, her everything wasn't working. And it balanced her. And so she became, instead of Dr. Philip Welsh, who she'd followed in New York City and Brooklyn, uh, here we had now a new one to follow. Right. So Edmund's a new guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was a new guy. And, uh, you know, I, I can just picture him. I mean, when you say he was a presence bigger than life, I mean, I, I can just imagine that. And Julie and I went to the little... Uh, museum here yesterday and which is essentially the little hut where you live for 10 years with Edmund in the early years of, of Rancho and on the wall are uh, uh, the covers of all the books that he wrote and the printing press that he created in the little room where you live with the wood burning stove and out back the Sumerian baths that he experimented with and I just imagine somebody who is constantly trying new things and experimenting and fascinated with health and how can we uh, have a better human experience, but thinking way outside the box and so far ahead of his time, even today, many of the ideas that are put forth in his many books would seem almost beyond the pale or radical by today's standards. So I can't imagine what it was like in the in the 30s with him trying to pontificate upon, you know, such radical nonsense. Well, don't say nonsense. Well, I mean, from, from a mainstream okay. point of view, All because right. I, I, I actually Apologies am very, very ex- interested in, and, yeah, I'm not saying that I think it's nonsense. I'm, I'm saying what a mainstream society might perceive what he's trying to put out yes. and misinterpret these ideas. No, and some of them were cookies, mm-hmm. but uh, essentially... The respect for nature runs throughout everything. And the respect for things that you don't see or feel. There's more to the earth than to the world. And there are different levels of consciousness. It's, it's, it's being accepting, not necessarily saying it's so, but accept the possibilities. Mm-hmm. And uh, he interpreted the teachings of Jesus differently and Moses. He reinterpreted Buddha and the thinking thought. Uh, He spent a lot of time thinking and gave his own understanding, his own version. Mm -hmm. And some of it today really sounds kooky because we know so much more now. But some of the things were prescient. I think it's it's quite prescient, and I'm really interested in how he became 
uh, interested in the Essenes. And I know Julie wants to ask a couple questions about that because, uh, and, and if you could explain a little bit about who the Essenes were, what their sort of fundamental perspective was. Uh, I'm very interested to know what your experience was and, and, and how you came to, you founded the, it was in the school for a school of the Essenes at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So why don't you go ahead and explain what the Essenes are? When we opened the first 10 years, it was the Essene school of life. And the idea was the simple life, the basic life. In other words, he took advantage of the fact that we had no running water, that we had outhouses, that we had kerosene lamps. And sort of, it was interesting because it sort of dovetailed. You know, in other words, it was then a choice. It was not the fact we didn't have right. electricity and we couldn't afford it. It's perspective, <laughs> right? And so we were living like the Essenes with mm. very basics. And we had goats that we milked in the morning, including the guests. And we had our own vegetable garden. And so in the morning, the guests at dawn would go, not very far up the mountain, there's a big, big rock. And they would stand over there and welcome the dawn. And had some ceremonies. So in some ways, it was a, his reconstruction. Mm-hmm. Not a replication or something, but a, his reinterpretation of what it would be like in an Essene colony. Right. And so people had to read and study, you know, that was part of it. And, uh, and so lecturing on philosophy, which was his forte, uh, and the great wisdom of the ancients, mm-hmm. all sort of fitted into his concept of what an Essene colony was like. Now, the Essenes were one of three Jewish sects, and they were the teachers, the healers. And theoretically, according to the Essene literature and those who read things and beginning more and more from the Dead Sea Scrolls, Jesus was probably an Essene and John the Baptist was an Essene and Thomas Lovett was an Essene, that that whole movement came. But, I mean, who knows? Mm-hmm. But the Dead Sea Scrolls corroborate mm-hmm. a lot of these theories. And um, it was very exciting. And I read everything on them. If I had didn't have the ranch and kids and this and that, I would have wanted to learn Arabic and learn more about the things. Yeah, it's it's fascinating, and I know that a big kind of sort of recurring theme in your life is this idea of synchronicity, and uh, and how things sort of come into your life at the right time, and and we're sort of experiencing a little bit of micro synchronicity right now, just being here. I mean, we feel like we were there was a a sort of force or tractor beam that pulled us to Rancho that's been trying to pull us for a long time. (laughs) And now we're here. Um, And, uh, and I hope it continues to pull you. Oh, I think it will. I think it will. I mean, it's such a blessing to, to sit here with you, but on on a little kind of fun, interesting little story of synchronicity, Julie, why don't you tell that story? No, well, I have great interest in the Essenes and, and studied them years, 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 years back and, and have had a very, um, sort of visceral connection with them. And I've, I've often said to Rich that I really felt that he is, he is of that, of that lineage. And if you read, um, like, uh, a 12 step program, for instance, it's very similar in, in some ways in the, in the service 
Um, another um, thing that I read about these scenes is that they, they went barefoot and Rich is meant to be barefoot. He should never have shoes on his feet ever. He's just not designed that way. Um, and what's really interesting is we have a new friend um, who actually read Rich's book and she's a master gardener. Her name's June. She lives in Malibu. We've spoken about her on the podcast before. But um, when I met her, I gave her my entire spiritual library, which wasn't that much because I had already purged it some years ago, but I gave her some really beautiful books that I had and she gave me one book back and I've done a couple liver cleanses with her and we sit in her garden and she gives me fruit from the trees and she reads to me out of this book that is one of your husband's books, but I didn't know it until I walked into the museum and it was just really quite beautiful. And again, the reason she resonates to it and the Essenes and the way of the Essenes is the connection to nature. And so that's where we're, you know. And that's still, that's what the ranch was all about. Right. So the ranch sort of emanates out of this idea of connecting with nature and the Essenes and developing a, a, a deeper sense of, you know, personal health. But when does it sort of open up to the public? I mean, you know, Ed, Edmund is lecturing three hours a day to groups of people that are coming down here. I mean, how does the kind of following start to develop? Well, when we came here, we had had a final check from his publishers in England of a thousand pounds, which at that time was a couple of thousand dollars. And they said, this is all, we, we can't send any money. We were living from his money from his publishers. And, uh, so, uh, we arrived here, and we started literally a health camp. We had scheduled already, talking about synchronicity, um, we had a summer school scheduled already for 23 people that were due to come to be with us for three weeks, in June, two sessions, three weeks and three weeks. But we were going to be in Elsinore, California, and we had leased a place called the Lord's Retreat, owned by Victor and Manan C. Lord on the shores of Lake Elsinore. Mm -hmm. And we were, the professor was going to have, and we call him the professor. Uh, and I called him the professor as a child, and I continued always throughout our life because everybody else called him the professor. <laughs> and he was a professor. I mean, you know, just wasn't. <laughs> now to just say Edmund, because that was the way he lived and thought. Anyhow, so... Uh, so when we arrived here, we knew we had these possible income coming. And we wrote everyone and said, it'll be $17.50 a week, bring your own tent. And they all came. And the first year, everybody bought their own tent. And the second year, um, I bought airplane wing covers from World War I surplus wing covers uh, because the Planes then uh, were partly wood. I don't, I don't know what a World War thing, but I assume because they had to cover the wings at night with these canvases. Right. And so I made wooden frames and hung the thing, and I had them lined up. And when the guests arrived, we always had little Mexican boys wanting to learn English and getting tents and tips hanging around. And so they carried these. And people would find a tree and then they'd go and the boys would follow and put their tent under whichever right. shrub or tree or view they wanted 
And from that, was so successful, the summer camp, and that was an Essene life, as close as my husband could imagine a workable schedule, etc. And the river was clean then, and it was a real river. And so we had the essences of a spa. We had water, we had the mountain to climb, and we had the sun. We have a fabulous climate. We literally have the finest climate in the United States in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, when winter came, when the, afterward they wanted to come back. So we rented some, uh, there were a few little adobe shacks around that had basically been resided, residents of rats and mice for many years, <laughs> but we cleaned them up and whitewashed them. And first we had two guests and four guests and six guests, and gradually, but there was never any intention of staying. We were leaving we were going back to England. Yeah, this was still your, your way of, of getting out of Dodge, right? With yeah. the <laughs> because it's the idea that uh, my husband was head of the British International Health and Education Center in Leatherhead, Surrey. And he was on leave of absence when this all happened. And he was, it was in Mexico writing books. And then we, that is a long story, and I was his secretary. And then we got married, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what happened, just briefly, when I was 16, I graduated from high school. And I was going to go to college, and Mom said it was too early. She wanted me to have, today they call that a gap year. Now it's a legitimate term. <laughs> but at that term, she wanted me to wait a year. So when we went to visit the professor in Guadalajara, his secretary was packing. And the professor was a true professor. He loved doing nothing useful. In other words, he couldn't type, he couldn't balance his checkbook, he couldn't get a railroad ticket. He couldn't, I mean, he enjoyed, he always had an entourage, he always had a system. So his secretary was leaving because his father had died and he had to go back to England. And so the idea was that we would wait two weeks, my mother and I, my dad, and we had come for Christmas to Guadalajara, Mexico. And my dad and brother went back, my brother had to get back to school. My mother and I waited two weeks until the secretary was going to arrive here. I found somebody who was coming. And it was a young man called Bela, blonde, Hungarian, looked around Guadalajara and, uh, at that time and uh, got on the same train that he got off. The train had a two-hour wait in Guadalajara on the way to Mexico City uh-huh. and disappeared. And so... Buzzick didn't have the heart to leave the prof alone. And she and wanted me, and she said, well, why doesn't Deborah be his secretary? And so the, I that's stayed it for a year, and that's where the connection started. Right. And so when you're, when you're in the beginnings of Rancho and you're having these summer camps, I mean, there was no such thing as a spa. The idea no, we, of a spa. We didn't have the idea of a spa. Either. And this was like this was sort of like commune living for the summer, where the professor is pontificating by day, and you're up at dawn, and and you know eating foods that are being harvested out of the ground, and experimenting with Sumerian baths, and doing all of these sort of health rituals that I think were kind of counterculture at the time, were they not? Or well, then. Counterculture sounds like a group, too. We were just individuals. Right. 
<clears throat> but but I mean, you know, now we're we're very health obsessed as a society, as a culture. But that was not kind of the tenor of the time, was it? I mean, the idea of sort of being healthy and but the people we attracted were mainly Europeans, mm-hmm. and they had already, you know, they never did abandon health that ideas. They had health camps, and when I was a child in uh, New York, uh, we used to belong to a hiking club. And they went hiking on weekends in the Catskills. They were mainly Germans, uh, but they were already into fitness. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people said out of those clubs, which were all over Europe, was how Hitler got his strength, was through the Bundjus, people who belonged to the hiking club. Interesting. Um, So so mostly a European... Layer to the people that were yeah. coming down, and then they it, were all European. All oh, all European. But at some point, you tap into this kind of Hollywood subculture, well, the, and the European. Yeah. They bought they, the European Hollywood. The Hungarians in Hollywood adopted us, and uh, and uh, we started, and through them. It, That's how it, it started. Spread, yeah. Uh-huh. It so spread. so before you so before you know it, you have people like Burt Lancaster and that took a while. Is it took a while? Well, who the was first, the first yeah, like, Okay. Now the first ten years. I, I want to know how this worked. Okay. Seventeen fifty a week became twenty five dollars a week, became thirty five dollars a week. And after ten years and I have ads, we were nine dollars a day. Mm-hmm. So it was very slow the first You're years. advertising in like the LA Times or yeah. mm-hmm. Little bucks, and uh, which took a lot of money. It wasn't then really much money, but for us it was a lot. But basically, word of mouth, because Hungarians are clannish. And here was this Hungarian stuck below the border, trying to eke out a living. Why don't we go there for the weekend? And then, because there's so much need in Tikati and everything, they would bring people used to have rumble seats. You know, and they would load it with blankets and things for the poor people here. So they would come for a weekend and take things into Tikati, and they'd have a, you know, uh, it was a good experience. Right. So there's this idea of the other Hungarians saying, let's support this Hungarian. This is an interesting thing that's happening. That was very important to Mm -hmm. us. And uh, so there was, and uh, it, it was that connection. So that, and so, Bert heard about it through uh, one of the uh, set. The, the let me explain just briefly. You know, the film industry started in Hungary, and they it all came from there. That's where all these people came who started in Hollywood. I didn't know that. And Hungary is the source. I feel like I should know that, but I didn't know. They that. had the great theaters, and the theater was very very strong in Hungary, and the early film industry started there, and so. The background of the great names, so many of them came from Hungary. Hmm. Anyhow, so uh, the all the people, not the great actors, all the other people, some of the directors, a number of them were Hungarian, a number of them were Viennese. They all came from that circle, and um, so the all the people who did the work. I don't want to say grunt work, but that's behind the, the camera, behind people. the camera, mm-hmm. that's the better. All the people behind the camera were Hungarian, and uh, one would tell another, and so the 
stars would hear about it, and that's how Bert came, mm-hmm. and that's how Bill Holden came. They all heard about it from listening. You know, Interesting. From the chatter. <clears throat> you know, I just went down to Ticati or something right. or other. And that's how... Uh, so, and then at some point, Vivian Lee comes down, right? And this becomes, this begins the process, and correct me if I'm wrong, of this idea of kind of being the place, you're the, you're, you become sort of the go-to person and the go-to place for these, these starlets who want to get in shape for their next movie. Well, people like Kim Novak yeah, Kim was Novak, a regular, and Kim she Novak, wasn't a right. starlet uh-huh. and everything. Um, and Barbara Rush and all, various, you know, but it all, but it came... From listening to the, the Hungarians, <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. talking about that, and so we had our own publicity agent, right? And our guests have viral marketing. This is early yeah. viral marketing. Our guests have always been our marketers. They have always. They come home from the branch, and someone says to them, "Wow, you've had a facelift," and she'll say, "No, I've been to Rancho La Prada." <laughs> <laughs> That's a common co- joke at the ranch. Right. And, uh, I mean, could you have imagined that, I mean, looking around to see the beautiful grounds and all the buildings and, and just, you know, what you've built here? I mean, was that, you know, the just natural unfoldment of expressing this authentic lifestyle that you were leading? Or was this always the plan? I mean, how did this, how did this come to be? We were meant to be. We were meant to be at this spot. Had nothing to do with I really believe that the mountain, we have a sacred mountain. We didn't know it was sacred when we came here. I always thought we paid $50 a month rent, but I came across some papers. We paid $50 for a year rent. No, it was not, mm. for some reason or other, I wasn't aware of that. But, um, and we heard the gossip about Mount Kuchima, sacred mountain. Uh, and my husband said, oh, you know, Folklore. Uh, he had another term for that. <laughs> and and um, we'd been here about two years. And there was a main, major North American Indian powwow on our mountain celebrating the death of one of their spiritual leaders. And we heard about it, you know, by the grapevine. And then we met someone who was studying the mountain and people who believe in a series of sacred mountains throughout our earth, we happen to have one in our backyard. And sometimes I feel our success, sometimes I'm being facetious that the mountain was bored and wanted to have something to watch over. <laughs> and here came along these people. I have no idea why we succeeded, uh, except that we were needed. We felt a need. And that's the most important thing in life is to be able to fill a need. Mm-hmm. And there's a gap and an opening, and and we just happen to be in the right place, right time, right place. And it's not me; it's many, many people. This is the work. I mean, you know, we're you know we're born on the arms of many happy guests, many happy workers, many. You know, I mean, it's it's uh, it it's. It was just being part of the evolution of the ranch. It had nothing to do with thinking or planning. Uh, it just sort of happened. Mm-hmm. And um, the war made it possible because it isolated us. 
and we're talking. And uh, we began um, basically, uh, our first guests were uh, people, uh, refugees from, you know, British people, because my husband was known in England, and from South Africa and from England, we, who were stuck in the States by the war, and all kinds of stories connected with that. And so we were really um, an interesting enclave, and from that, that also added to our mystique. And it became something, an uh, exotic place to go and spend a week. It, it became, in a very small group yeah. of people, it became special. Yeah, I can, I can see that. I mean, to, to sort of harken back and think back on it and think, well, oh my gosh, we have to leave the United States and go to Mexico or this bad thing is going to happen. And, and to, there's no way that you could have predicted or foreseen that that was actually such an amazing thing, like uh, such a blessing that came into your life, yeah. right? I mean, it's uh, it's it's quite extraordinary. I, I mean, and now when when people say to you, "Oh, you're the, you know, you birthed the wellness movement," or you're, I mean, how does that sit with you? I mean, what do you what I'd do you be think more about likely that? a midwife? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it was a lot of work, a lot of dreams, but. That's what life's all about, work and dreams. Well, I mean, I think it takes a lot of vision and a lot of um, courage to live in alignment with your heart and what you what you feel is right or the signs that you get or the messages that you get. And um, I would say just being here for a week, um, your presence is felt very much throughout everything. And I know there's a lot of people involved, but um, you've really held space for an incredible... Um, gathering and healing and experience of all these people. Um, how many acres do you have now? 3,000. 3,000 acres. We were discovering, we keep discovering more buildings in more extraordinary places as the week goes on. And um, your yoga rooms are, are unparalleled, the most beautiful rooms I've ever seen anywhere that I've been. Um, and I had the great uh, pleasure of going to the kitchen um, La Cucina Que Canta. Um, and it is extraordinary. The garden is on six acres. And I met Salvador, who is a, just a beautiful, beautiful man. And um, anyway, it's it's really something. So, Well, the you, kitchen and garden is totally credit to my daughter. Mm. I have a brilliant, brilliant daughter. <laughs> you do. And she is... Uh, trained botanist and landscape designer and gardener. But she has a garden soul. Uh -huh. It's very unusual. And she has, it's hard to put into words, but I'm very, 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 very fortunate. And what is your daughter's name, full name? Her name, her name is Sarah. Sarah Olivia. 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 Oh, just, li just Livia. The uh -huh. Romanian Livia. Beautiful. Sarah and she's Livia. also the art that you have um Art plays a, a very, very big role here, um, and you it's very, very beautiful, very beautifully done. And uh, tell us a little bit about, about that. Mm. It's hard to... They're hard to well, for, for one thing, you're, you have a series of sculptures that are yes. all throughout the... All those grounds. are good fortune. The art that we have, one particular artist in particular, Piscina, who's wonderful, I was at um, I was in Mexico City and I was at, staying at the Hilton many many years ago thirty years ago forty years ago and the paintings were so cheap 
Mm-hmm. And so they, I said, how many more do you have? And he went in the back room and I said, I'll take them all. <laughs> and then we established a relationship with the painter and he came regularly and would bring art and we'd sell it to our guests and uh-huh. we'd sprinkle piscinas all over Hollywood. Mm-hmm. He's become very famous, but, but I mean, but I like beauty. Mm-hmm. So, and, uh, and then uh, the statues, I was in Cuernavaca at a hotel and they had a bunch of bronze statues in their garden. I thought, oh, how wonderful. And I said, who's the artist? And they said, well, his atelier is just around the corner. And so go around the corner and meet a very wonderful man and, and establish a relationship. But I could only afford one statue a year mm-hmm. because well, by this time it was, right. there was more. But every year yes. he would send us his portfolio and we would pick Choose a statue. One. And so it, his it, work is beautiful. Yeah. And so that's mm-hmm. how that happened. Mm-hmm. But so, but those things, you don't go looking. It just finds you. Yeah. Right. I'm really very strongly, I believe there's angels that protect us. And somewhere or other, they take us and guide us and do all that stuff. I think you have to believe. I mean, when you look around here, there's so many. It's such an extraordinary place that it's impossible to, to not sort of ponder the idea that it's been divinely guided in some way to, to, to be what it has. I mean, it's, it's been here for, it's been 73, 74 years at this point. Yeah. And really, you know, w- what we sort of understand and know of is the modern spa didn't exist. This is the template from which all of that was born. I mean, this is the original, the, you, the, you really are for, you know, whether you, sort of accept the mantle or not you are the you are the mother energy of all of this that's happening now and it's really quite extraordinary and beautiful and i think um you know i'm interested in in what you think about uh this sort of current explosion of wellness i mean people are very into wellness and this sort of spa industry has never been bigger and yet as we were talking about at dinner the other night you know we're the wealthiest country on the planet and yet we've never been more sick and if when you look at the statistics they're abysmal and they're heading in in the wrong direction heart disease you know the incidence of heart disease is going up obesity diabetes cancer all of these congenital western diseases are getting worse and so despite all of the efforts and all of the interest and all of the money being spent by people to get healthy or lose weight what's going on um, there was a book and a play called Cry the Beloved Country. I remember that book. That's how I feel about our country. I can't begin to tell you because I read all the different new books coming out and all the different scientific things. We not only are the sickest nation, we will be the sickest nation until the time comes that we start in having natural food. I honestly believe that the fast food means fast death. That, and the poor people have no choice because of the farm bill that subsidizes everything that is bad. Subsidizes everything that is bad, makes it so cheap. And in relation, that which is good is expensive. And it is, you know, the educated people, most of them I know, you know, have a good diet, and they're going to live longer. Their life is expanding. The poor people's life and the illness and the suffering 
And we really, I mean, what I don't believe that the body can recognize and assimilate properly food made in vats. I honestly believe that there is an aliveness factor in fresh food, very fresh food. And the people who are made, even born, who's going to, some scientists going to identify that aliveness. They, uh, the GMO, the modified wheat, when they fix it so it cannot germinate, or the germinate is uh, germination isn't fertile, they're affecting the liveness, the, the essence, the core, like the core of people. Mm-hmm. So this is something, I don't know what we can do because it affects the people who are not educated and the people, you know, the mother with four kids who can stop at McDonald's and bring home dinner for 25 bucks. Yeah, how do you... How do you uh... How do you combat that? I mean, it's a socioeconomic problem that becomes uh, self-perpetuating. I mean, you cannot compete with Taco Bell and McDonald's when they're farm subsidies and they can, they can keep those prices as low as they were in 1976, 1977, you know, and you're telling somebody that they need to go to Whole Foods and shop. There's no, it's, imp- it's an impossibility. We're going to have to do community gardens, community greenhouses. We're going to have to start growing no, there's no reason. I always took my grandkids to Alaska. There was nothing fresh in any of the stores. Absolutely nothing. A few shriveled, shriveled carrots. I mean, there was, you know, everything is boxes, bottles, and cans. We need to throw out all the boxes, bottles, and cans and go back to the original foods, the fresh foods. And they'll say, well, you can't have as many seeds. You can't feed the world. They'll, they, all these stories. But everybody... Every country could grow its own food. We could help them send fertile seeds and plows and, and help them instead of sending sacks of things. Instead of being the breadbasket, every country can be the breadbasket, whatever it is. There is so much that can be done. And, but it would be, you know, the key is evolution is slow. And our body is burdened with too much new stuff that it maybe in time it can develop the ability to assist, assimilate, to get values out of the food. But instead it, it goes straight to fat. And, so, and it's not the poor people's fault. It's all they can afford. So the president is talking about the farm bill they have to really scuttle all the different subsidies. But how is that? They were created instantly during, before the Depression, and during the Depression they were... Yeah, they're a relic of a different era in and many ways. And, and how do you... But, but that they've been around for so long, and so many lives are dependent upon the, that sort of staying in place. So how do we confront that and overcome that? But there's so many more lives that are... We have no choice, actually. If we look at the decrease in health in Disha, we're now 40th, according to some of the studies. We are the sickest people. We write more prescriptions per year than the whole world combined. Mm-hmm. Than the whole, I mean... That's insane. And the amounts, 
you know, the according to the Institute of Medicine, the average 60-year-old takes six prescriptions. The average 80-year-old takes eight. I mean, this is a fact. All right. And before, Not, I want to hear, but let me just interject. Yeah. At 91, tell me what medications you take. I take a half a pill of Centroid because about 10 years ago, my doctor said, your thyroid's getting a little bit lazy. And he wanted me to take one. And I said, what if I only took half? He said, I guess that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. That's I the- don't take aspirin. I don't take Tylenol. And, uh, Multivit- any vitamin? Oh, B12 tons. shot, right? I take a B12 shot every month. Mm-hmm. Do you get a flu shot? No. No way. I, I happen to have a great deal of faith in the body's ability to heal itself. And it's, I've seen it proven over and over again so many times. And the body wants to survive. You know, it wants to live. It, you know, it's, it enjoys living. It doesn't really want to die. And it will do everything to support you, but you have to support it. You have to take responsibility for your body. It's, it's you know, and recognizing the importance of your body and your life is so important and then taking care of it. And you need proper quantity of food and water and oxygen, which I use for exercise. Because to make the fire, the furnace burn, you have to have air, oxygen. Uh, we're doing everything wrong. But the biggest diabolical thing is what has happened to indirectly this worship of money. And so... They find the snack industry doesn't exist to this degree in any other country on the on earth, and they're busy expanding as fast as they can, and we're spreading this mm-hmm. and everything. But uh, the stomach is never given a chance to rest. I believe in meals, three meals, and you know, and the pause in between, so the stomach can complete its job and and clean up its mess and be ready for the next. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I'm against food. Uh, we're just doing everything that, when you think about it, doesn't make much sense. Right. And and I think change has to happen at different levels. We have the individual's personal choices, so change at the very personal level. Then you have the change at the community level. You're talking about community gardens or greenhouses. Um, and then there's change at the highest level, at the government level. And you've spent... 17 years in Washington. You have a very attuned sense as to how it works inside the beltway. How it used to work. Or how maybe how it used to work. Yeah, things are getting out of control right now. Uh, maybe how it used to work. I mean, you've rubbed elbows with all of our most recent presidents from Reagan, Gerald Ford, Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you were on Capitol Hill right now, and we're confronting this issue of the farm subsidies, or what kind of policy changes would you like to see happen that you think are doable? You know, for every member of Congress and Senate, there are a handful of lobbyists. The congressmen and the senators are so busy, and their staff quite often aren't terribly knowledgeable, and so they depend on the lobbyists. And so it's, it's so complicated the whole system uh, that I don't know what but somewhere or other someone has got to say enough 
The food subsidies, the farm bill, coming up, needs, it started out very good until the lobbyists attacked. Mm-hmm. The bill that we heard about a year, a year and a half ago uh, had a lot of good in it. And so the number one is the subsidies. And that would throw, if we just did that one thing, that would throw a monkey wrench into all kinds of things. People would stop growing all that corn and all that sucrose and all the, and the ethanol that is so expensive to produce and the soil that is being depleted. We're going to have a dust farm like you can't believe the soil. You can only amend it with chemicals so much. It needs to have nature. It needs to have grasses plowed under. The Bible had us leave the fields fallow for every seventh year. Mm-hmm. And that was done in all traditions, not just in the Christian tradition. And there's so much sense. And what has happened, we're abusing the soil and we're abusing our people. And somewhere or other in our educational system, we have to be teaching. Um, that's why I say cry. Because I don't, I wish I could say I'm optimistic. I was optimistic. And youth are optimistic and have to be optimistic. But when you've been around in my age, so what I've been trying to do is establish something called Wellness Warrior. I want to be able to bring together all that, what I call health nuts. I'm a health nut, so that's a, not a pejorative term. It's a positive term. There are literally millions of people who do take care of their health and do take responsibility. And I want to be able, my, my total fantasy is that there will be, and I may not be alive, but I want to set the seeds for it, that there'll be a wellness march on Washington. I was at the Million Mom March. I was at these marches because I was living in Washington, and, I would, and we could only march like one inch and one inch. <laughs> it was wonderful, uh-huh. a crowd of humanity. I want to have it for wellness so that they know in Washington that Congress and the Senate know that people, we have to go back more. We went too far. We are living a culture that is not sustainable. I think it's how, I, I mean, I, I have, you know, I'm more optimistic about something like that happening, I think. I mean, I think that Thank there's God. a huge groundswell. I'm not that young. Younger. <laughs> uh, there's a huge groundswell of interest in change. You know, I think people are fed up right now and they can see through, you know, the internet has really brought a certain transparency to things. And so a lot of things that maybe government used to be able to get away with or, or things that could get obscured in the press, it's now a lot easier to kind of discover the truth about how things work and, and how big agricultural companies are lying to us or how, you know, we're, we've been misled about health and nutrition. And I think people really want sustainable change. And, and I think, you know, this, this wellness warrior idea, what's, what's interesting about it is you look at, we're talking about inside the beltway and how the government works and, and how sort of the house is beholden to K street lobbyists and these, you know, private interest groups that fund these campaigns and, you know, all of that is completely out of control. Well, 
are we going to overhaul that whole system? Well, unlikely, you know, maybe hopefully some legislation will get passed that will rein some of that in. But in the meantime, well, what can we do? Well, you're going to have to play their own game. Like if you want to, you have to create your own lobby that is equally as powerful and on, on equal footing with the, the powerful lobbying groups that are pulling these congressmen in the opposite direction. That's the idea. So your idea, war. yeah, your idea is brilliant, which is let's get all the best and the brightest together and let's get unified. I mean, right now we were talking about this at dinner the other day too, that wellness can be so bifurcated. There's people that are only interested in the environmental aspects of it. And then you have the sort of ethical vegans who are interested in animal welfare, or you have the people that are interested about in organic farming and you, you, there, it's very, um, it's very diverse. Right. And I think you have to sort of look at the bigger picture and say, well, we're, we all share this one common idea, which is that there has to be a better way of harvesting and producing our food to create healthier, healthier, a healthier America. And if we can just get unified on that, we could actually pool our resources and get something done in Washington. And you get people like Bill Gates or people that have real power and money who are willing to support this effort on a global level. And I think you, you actually have the possibility for ushering forth real change. And you did, just briefly, you did mention animals. As long as those animals suffer, it's a blood on us, our escutcheon. It is. You know, uh, because they have feelings just like people do. And they have endorphins and, all, and joy. And they're required to be a healthy animal. And eating sick animals makes sick people. And uh, I'm not saying everyone should be vegetarian, and I'm not saying don't eat meat. But they have to be out roaming. They're, you know, you see cows uh, out in the field when it's sunny. They go lie under the trees. They, you know, they have their instincts and their nature and everything. And what's happening is they suffer from the instant they're born. And I believe the meat is tainted by the suffering of the animals. And one of the things that is getting us sick, sort of like the revenge of the animals, for their suffering. People are paying with their health. Yeah, there's no, there's no question about that in my mind. And, and you know, essentially what you're saying is that, that uh, you know, the food that you take into your body carries a certain energy and has a vibration to it, right? And when it's fresh produce out of the land, that has a certain vibration. It's an elevating vibration. It's a positive vibration. And then there's the, the sort of decaying, pesticide-ridden, hormone-infused, uh, you know, terrified, suffering animal vibration that is having a negative... Im- and it sounds, you know, you can, without getting too new age about it, I mean, I truly believe that if you're taking in that vibration, that is having an impact on your health, the way you think, the way your body functions, the way you feel, the way you interact with the people around you, everything. I believe 100% what you just said. Mm-hmm. That should be engraved. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's we've gotten so far away from that, you know, vegan, vegetarian, or omnivore, or what have you. Um, 
we live in a society in which our food is produced in an abhorrent way and animals are tortured on a mass scale and harvested in extremely unhealthy conditions. And even when somebody says, well, I have my grass fed beef or my this, I think there's a misapprehension that those animals are living, you know, these lovely lives where in truth, I think for the most part, not in every case, but for the most part, even the grass fed, you know, animals are still just given a little bit more room to walk around and it, and it, it really isn't qualitatively that much different. And that's just the way it works economically to be able to produce food at a certain price point for the consumer. And we keep on talking about plant-based diets and you don't need all that stuff. You don't. I mean, you know, a plant-based diet is an easy way of sort of, you know, getting to the solution of all of these problems. Uh, and uh, I think that we're at a, at a crossroads right now where if we really do want to take a firm stand and try to reverse these trends that adopting a plant-based diet is a pretty good way of doing it because it puts a stop to a lot of these practices <clears throat> and starts to move us in a different direction. And it may sound radical, but I think that, you know, we don't need, we don't really need to eat meat anymore. We have, we choose to, but you know, if, if, my life has been about anything. It's about showing that it's just a choice that we make, that we can be perfectly healthy without it, but we just choose to continue to eat it for whatever reason. Well, for thousands of years, you know, the uh, Persians, the Indians, well, vegetarians, whole nations, uh, they seem to have survived very well. Yeah, they're doing okay. They're still <laughs> persist, yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, I mean, what do you think about that idea? Like, if you could get, like, a lot of these sort of industry pioneers that are, I mean, right now, you have a lot of titans of industry who are very interested in this, from Bill Gates to James Cameron, you know, the director of Titanic and Avatar, to, um, you know, Biz Stone, the founder of Twitter, and, you know, these technology industry people who are putting their money where their mouth is and are really rolling up their sleeves and getting active in, in wellness in, in a new and really fascinating way. But what if you could get all of those people together to create your own super PAC to go head to head with, you know, the dairy lobby or the meat industry or whatever, and, and bend the ears, uh, you know, in Congress to start to pass some laws that could actually do some good for all of us. That would be a dream come true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but it, it will take something like that. Yeah. It will take the power of the people, enough people who care enough that they don't know what to do with those extra billions. We have good ideas of how they can use them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, because they could come together and they could do exactly that. And the thing is to reach them in every way you can, and you're doing that. Oh, you're doing, you're doing that. You're doing that. What I love about you is that I mean, you're as active and as energetic and, and as committed as, as you ever have been. And you're just, you're constantly reinventing yourself, whether it's this project or that project. And now it's Wellness Warrior. Um, and you never relent. How can you? What's the secret? <laughs> I've always said work is play. And I can't imagine doing anything else but working in something I believe in. And uh, I... My faith has given me great health, and I'm so lucky, and I mm -hmm. appreciate it. But I um, plan on being well for years to come. The body is very 
acknowledges any good treatment, like acknowledges bad treatment. And so I expect it to continue renewing itself mm-hmm. as it should do, as mm-hmm. it wants to do. And uh, you just have to take your body into your life. And uh, I usually suggest first thing in the morning, people be aware of what's getting out of bed. It's their whole being. It's not just the job that's awaiting and the this and that, but that acceptance of the body in their, as, a, as their partner. Mm-hmm. And uh, they know that they have to walk and they know they have to drink water and they know they have to exercise and they know they have to eat what the food body needs. Provide the body what it needs. Don't burden it down mm-hmm. with all the trash. And I think every, there's no reason why people can't be healthy because the body has the ability to maintain the health. But after a while, if you wear it down, the wrong things year after year, disease does get the upper hand and mm-hmm. it's not necessary. Have you ever suffered from any kind of disease? Yeah, I had the traditional breast cancer at 60. Oh, you did? Uh Uh-huh. And I did have a mastectomy. I just removed it. It, I felt my breast had betrayed me. I had no use of it. I was 60. I didn't really need it. (laughs) My kids, (laughs) you know, unnecessary. I didn't do reconstruction or anything because I don't believe any uh, unnecessary surgery. So I just had it off. And... uh, because it's me and I had confidence in my body, I chose not, and it was not a very severe cancer. I may have thought about it differently, but it was a sort of common everyday breast cancer variety. And uh, I did not do any chemotherapy or radiation. And my doctor, who's now dead, begged me and pleaded and cried. And, this. and I said, no, my body, I'm going to be very careful of what I eat. I'm going to see that I do everything right and my body will heal itself. But that didn't mean that I just went back to eating casually or I I paid more attention. Mm -hmm. And uh, since that was 30 years ago, it seems to have worked. Yeah, I think it, well, I mean, you, you, uh, you know, for the listener out there, you look amazing. Your skin looks amazing. You're incredibly vibrant and present. And, uh, you know, I've never met anyone in their, I mean, I've met other people in their 90s, of course, but I've never met anyone who was so uh, vibrant as you. So you're doing something right. <laughs> anyway, I care a lot. And I think the need to try to get something done is a very important a passion. Everyone who talks about longevity or done any study, you have to have a passion. You have to have a reason I really have a lot to be done. I don't have time to get sick, and I don't have time to get old. That's a luxury. Mm-hmm. And uh, you don't have to buy that luxury. Right. So the uh, the One Million Wellness March on Washington is one goal. <laughs> what are the other goals? Uh, it really is to get more I want to connect all the wonderful organizations who are doing great things. They're working individually. They're all sort of siloed. And I would like to bring together, I'm hoping through Wellness Warrior, but to do like a USA News Today on our website, and we're redoing our website so this can happen, uh, because it's wellnesswarrior.org. 
um, that we are redoing the website so that I can talk about what watching the 27 or so really fine groups that deal with environment and uh, with air and water and food. You know, the agencies that work to protect us, to provide safe air, water, and food, and all these things. I want to connect them. I want to be able to bring them together, but mm -hmm. to bring that knowledge. When I meet people, I say, which of these organizations do you follow? And I find very few do. So I want to be able to follow and so that people know how much wonderful thing is happening. Environmental Working Group, uh, Food and Water Resource, uh, Food and Water Watch, and Food and Water Resource, but all these different organizations. I want people to know that there's a lot of good going on and to support them. And so I would hope that in our thing we would be able to report on what's happening in what I call the health nut world. Mm -hmm. So, And it's a big world. And to be able to talk about the positive things that are happening as well as the negative things. Mm -hmm. And for people to know that, the, you know, we used to call, do something called tithing in the church. Everyone was supposed to give 10% of their income to support these people, these organizations who are doing wonderful things. And so if everyone would pick one or two or three and begin just lots of people supporting them, then they can do more research, have more statistics, more information, and get it out. Because the knowledge is there. And there are wonderful books on the subject. And begin to look at it. Uh, and have people look at uh, this recent one called, not that recent, Foodopoly, like Monopoly, mm -hmm. put the word food, which has charts and graphs that show that most of our foods are owned by a few companies. Most of the cattle slaughterhouses are few companies. Everything is big business. We need to cultivate small business again. That small is beautiful line mm -hmm. that was so important in our culture in the 60s. Um, we need to, uh, and all, everyone has to become a warrior and decide that my health is worth fighting for. Right. It's definitely uh, an uphill um an uphill battle, but I think that there are remnants of it that are starting. You know, there is an, a real interest with young people in organic farming, for example, which is something that didn't exist when I was a kid. And now you're seeing young, educated people really pursuing that as something, as a trade, as a craft, as a, as a life work. Um, and it's, I think part of it is fueled by a desire and a search for something authentic, something tactile in our lives, because we've gotten so far away from that. And the young people are reacting to that. So there's a, the pendulum is swinging back, back in the right direction, I think. But when you're talking about confronting and taking, taking on Monsanto and General Mills and Tyson and all of these companies, I mean, this is no small thing. But, what we have to do is strengthen all that is good. The line of my husband, strengthen that which is good, and they were keeping a scale. The, that which is bad will diminish relationship. You can't fight them directly, and I'm not trying to do that, but we can strengthen all the people who are doing the good things. 
support them and help them. That's beautiful. I think that's a good place to stop it. Is there anything else you want to add? No, just love your body. I guess that's the best message. Be It is your responsibility, your joy, your pleasure, or ignore it and it's your pain. And we all have to remember that there are a lot of us that are with you. We are already wellness warriors. And uh, Rich and I are with you definitely. And we look forward to our next step with you and to being a part of creating a new and better life for all of us. Thank you. Thanks so much for your time. It was really an honor and a pleasure. So I appreciate it. If uh, people want to find out a little bit more <clears throat> about Deborah and what she's doing and what's going on here in uh, Tecate, they can go to RanchoLaPuerta.com. And the wellness, wellnesswarrior.org, is that up right now or that, that's yeah. under construction? It, no, it's, it's up, up. But it's, it's being just redone. Being, it's, but it's still there and right. it's worth looking at. Yeah, and that's really the place we want to direct people to go, right? All right, good. Well, let's, let's, let's make something happen. Want to do that? Let's help. All right, good. <laughs> All right, thanks so much, Deborah. You're welcome. Peace. Plants. Yeah.